I've got uh, 629 on my fancy watch. That one up there is a little slow, but let's get started. And let me just uh, say, tonight's going to be session eight. So after tonight, we're going to have four sessions to go. We will finish the book of Hebrews. We're going to take off Thanksgiving week. So that's uh, Thanksgiving Eve would be that Wednesday night. We won't have a class that night. So if you're marking your calendar and keeping up with it, we're going to finish on December the 5th. And then we'll take a uh, break for Christmas, come back after Christmas in January, and uh, take, do something else. I'm still working on that. So um, just want to kind of give you a heads up what is coming. Let's pray and we'll dive into Hebrews chapter 9. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the constancy of your word that it uh, doesn't change because you don't change. You are who you are. And Lord, I thank you that there's truth in your word that we can stand upon that doesn't shift and never gives way under our feet. It is constant no matter what's going on in our lives. So tonight we seek to know you through your word. Tonight I ask what I've been praying for some time now, you'd open our minds to understand the scriptures so that we might know you in Jesus' name. Amen. The high priest. If you study much about the Hebrews, the book of Hebrews, you're going to find out about this high priest. The high priest Jesus is superior to the high priest Melchizedek. The covenant. This is the second thing you learn about Hebrews. The covenant based on the blood of Jesus is superior to the old covenant, the one that God gave to Abraham, the one that God renewed with Moses in detail under the law. So I want you to, let's start here tonight as we begin chapter 9. Everything about Jesus as a high priest and Jesus as the new covenant of the blood is superior. There's no competition between the new under Christ, high priest, and covenant compared to the old. It is superior. Everything is superior under Jesus. Why? Because everything under the old covenant was actually revealing the coming of Jesus. It wasn't a separate event. It was the revelation of him coming anyway. So every, And we're going to find that out tonight. I'll tell you what. Chapter 9 is why you can't consider the Old Testament as irrelevant. Because it explains, when you understand chapter 9 of Hebrews, you understand why you'll never understand the New Testament until you understand the Old Testament. And everything is superior in Jesus because Jesus is the fulfillment of all the shadows of the Old Testament. All the, uh, all the, the, the shadows, the previews, the images of the Old Testament, I'm going to get into detail, all take reality when Jesus comes. Now, they didn't know that in the Old Testament. They could only see parts of it. We see so much more because we're on the other side of his coming. So chapter 9 begins with the description of the tabernacle worship. And by the way, that was also a shadow of Jesus. And you're going to see that tonight in a way probably, I don't know if you've ever seen it or not. If tonight's the first time you see this, you're, you're going to be amazed, okay? Hebrews 9 verse 1. 
The first covenant between God and Israel. The first covenant between God and Israel. What would that be? Well, it began with Abraham, right? And then it, and it came up to Moses and the law and all that. This, this covenant promise. The first covenant between God and Israel had regulations for worship and a place of worship here on earth. Why? 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 you got to understand why. Because when God revealed this law, this covenant to Moses, God was going to do what he had not done since Adam and Eve, and he closed the gate at the east side of the Garden of Eden. God was going to come dwell among his people. Well, he had not dwelt among his people. He had separated himself from Adam and Eve. And now in the time of Moses, God says what? I'm going to come live among the community of Israel. But to do that, for me to move in and you all not all die because I show up, there has to be a covenant. There has to be a way to atone for the sin of man. There has to be a method. So I'm going to move into your neighborhood. I'm going to go to this cul-de-sac of the, of the Israel community. I'm going to live there. But to do that, there's got to be a covenant. All right? So that's the basis. Why was there a covenant? Because the Shekinah glory of God had departed from man. He communicated with Adam and Eve and, and, and people who followed, but his glory was, was separate. Why do you think the angels had a gate up at the Garden of Eden so that man couldn't just come to the tree of life, but he also couldn't come into the presence of God? So it was lost. And now God wants to come and dwell among the people of Israel. The first covenant between God and Israel had regulations for worship. And a place of worship here on the earth. There were two rooms in that tabernacle. Now when it says tabernacle, what are we doing? We're in the time of Moses. It's a tent. It's a mobile tent. This tabernacle had two rooms. In the first room were a lampstand, a table, and sacred loaves of bread on the table. This room was called the most, excuse me, the holy place. Now, this, this tabernacle had an outside wall, and it had a courtyard inside the gate of the outside wall. But it was, the courtyard wasn't a room. It was open to the sky. But there was a room that you would then go into that you would pass through that room and go into another room at the center of the tabernacle. The first room is the holy place. Inside the holy place, what is it? Notice again, there's a lampstand, a table, sacred loaves of bread on the table. In the holy place, into the first room, after you leave the courtyard of the tabernacle. Here's the second room. There was a curtain. And behind the curtain was the second room called the most holy place. In that room were a gold incense altar and a wooden chest called the Ark of the Covenant which was covered with gold on all sides. Inside the ark were a gold jar containing what? Manna. Aaron's staff that sprouted leaves and the stone tablets of the covenant. What are there in the box? And the box is covered with gold. And the box is the ark of the covenant. The ark of God. Verse 5. Above the ark... So I want you to visualize this golden box. It has a seat on it, and there are angels or cherubim on top of that with their wings extended facing inward toward each other. Verse 5, above the ark were the cherubim of divine glory. 
whose wings stretched out over the arks cover the place of atonement. Now, you don't read over that. What, what's, what's the, what are the angels doing? They're, they're looking across the place of atonement. The place of atonement. You know what atonement is? To pay off something. They're looking across the place where something's going to be paid for. Right? The mercy seat is where the payment will be received by God. Why? So that he will live in your community and you can live in his. And if somebody doesn't pay, you won't be able to live there. Right? That's what this is about. But we cannot explain these things in detail now. But I can. Okay? That was him writing that. Verse 5. I'm going to ask you a question. Can you see the shadow of Jesus in these first five verses? Can you see a revealing, a revelation of Jesus Christ in the Old Testament tabernacle? Can you? Because here we go. The Shekinah glory of God was inside the most holy place, enthroned above the ark. In fact, the best way I can describe the ark of the covenant is this. It is and was the throne of God. It is his seat. It is his throne, right? It's behind the door, behind the curtain. The glory of God enthroned above the ark. Do you know what the priest had to go through to get to the glory of God? So this priest is a Levite. He's on the outside of the tent. Not, not, not in the courtyard. He's on the outside with the people. Do you know what he had to do? If he's going to approach that throne of God, if he's going to move toward God, start walking in the direction of God, he's got to, how's he going to get in there? The tabernacle had one door, one gate. Not a door, a gate. One gate, one gate. The only one way in. You're not going to get in except through one gate. Anybody see Jesus in that? What does he say? Jesus says, I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. No one comes to the Father. What, 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 why would you go in that tabernacle? You want to go to the Father. No one comes to the Father except through me. Jesus says, I am the way. I am the gate. Right? So in this tabernacle, what are we seeing? We see Jesus. The first thing you see when you approach the tabernacle is the gate. Jesus is the gate. Inside the gate is the first thing you would see is a bronze altar. So when I say bronze altar, I want you to understand this is a wash basin. It has water in it. And this, this is for washing. So can I see Jesus in this one? If he's the gate, then I step inside the gate, there's a bronze basin. It's for cleansing. What is Jesus? Jesus says, I'm the living water. Well, what is this idea of baptism? It is the washing away. So Jesus is this, the blood of Jesus washes away our sin. So Jesus can be seen in every instrument of the tabernacle. 1,500 years before he's born in Bethlehem, he is every instrument in the tabernacle. Inside the gate is a bronze altar. Inside the gate is an altar for burning sacrifices. So can we see Jesus in this one? You know what they have to do before they burn the sacrifice? They have to kill it and shed its blood. It's blood. Jesus is that offering. 
He is the Passover lamb that will be sacrificed for the sins of the world. Through the first, so once you go through the gate, you go through the water of the bronze altar, you go through the, the altar that the sacrifice is, is, the blood is shed and set on fire, the body is set on fire. After that, there is finally, not a gate, a door, a doorway that enters the holy place. What's in there? Through the first inner curtain is a lampstand. Is Jesus in the inner curtain? What does he say? I am the light of the world. You can't make this up. If next to the lampstand is what? The altar of incense. Is Jesus in there? The altar of incense. Some, this is a little bit harder to see. The altar of incense represents the, they would burn incense. It was smoke. It had a smell. It, by the way, it was a mixture that God gave personally to Moses. You couldn't mess with the ingredients. It was a recipe designed by God that created a pleasant aroma, and it could only be that recipe burned in that setting. So what does it represent? The prayers of the saints. The Bible says that when we pray, it rises as incense before God. Is Jesus in this scene? Jesus is the one who stands between us and God, the high priest that intercedes on our behalf and takes our prayers, our incense to the Father behind the veil. You can't make this up. There's another curtain. And the other curtain separates the most holy place. Jesus tore that veil when he died on the cross. He tore it. When he cried out, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, it is finished. The, the veil of that separation, it was torn from top to bottom. Jesus' death opened a way. What's the whole tabernacle thing about? Please don't miss it. It's so that man and God could live together in the same area. And what did Jesus tear it for? To make a way. Listen, you're going you're to need this later. This was so important for the new priesthood and the new covenant to be able to begin. The old priesthood and the old covenant were being torn as well. Why? Because Jesus is not a priest from the tribe of Levi, is he? And the priests from the tribe of Levi, they do all this tabernacle stuff. But Jesus is going to elevate above this earthly tabernacle, and he's going to go to a heavenly tabernacle that is not a shadow of anything. It is the real thing. But the veil will be torn, allowing something new. Listen, allowing something new to come. A new priesthood, a new covenant will begin. Inside the most holy place, once you go through the curtain that's now been torn, is the ark of God, the throne of God, the mercy seat. Jesus is. You can slice it a thousand ways, but I'm going to tell you what Jesus is. He is the mercy of God. He's God's mercy. There is no mercy without Jesus. If you take Jesus out of this, you don't get, you don't get any mercy. He is the mercy of God. So when you see this mercy seat, what you're seeing is a shadow of Jesus himself. And it is not just a mercy seat. It is also the throne of God, which throne means a king. He's a merciful king, both. He's going to take his seat on David's throne in Jerusalem on the mercy seat. Inside that 
Ark of God. What's in there? It's a box, right? A gold-covered box. What's in there? The first thing it mentions is their stone tablets of the law. Is Jesus in that one? He is the Word of God. Jesus is the Word of God. What are the stone tablets? The Word of God. Directly from God. Jesus is the Word of God directly from God. He's in that box. He's, they are a shadow. What else is inside that? There's a jar of manna. What is manna? Bread from heaven. What is Jesus? Bread from heaven. He said, I am the bread of life. Anybody starting to pick up on this? That everything in the Old Testament, everything in the tabernacle is a shadow, a picture that will be revealed when he shows up. Bread from heaven. And here's one of my favorites. Aaron's staff that budded. Now, if you don't know the history of that one, and I can't go into detail, but Aaron's staff was a supernatural thing that proved that God had his own priest. And not just anybody could be God's priest. It had to be Aaron. So there was some competition that rose that how, how come Aaron gets to be the high priest? So God said to each of you, take a stick, a dead stick, and put it somewhere and God says, I will take that, I will do something supernatural to prove which one of you will be my called high priest. Because the Bible says you can't appoint yourself as high priest. You have to be appointed by God, right? So they put it there for a while. Later they come back. Aaron's staff, this is Moses' brother. Aaron's staff, it's a stick, has budded and produced almonds. A stick. They didn't put it in the ground. They didn't put miracle grow on it. They didn't do nothing. They just took a stick and it, you know what, it, a piece of wood. Anybody starting to see it? A piece of wood that was dead will now produce life and fruit. Anybody see Jesus? On a tree there was death. Wood produced death that produced life which produced fruit. Everything in the Old Testament reveals the coming Messiah. There were two cherubim. This is my favorite of all of them. You know why? Because it's the last one I saw. I was reading a book. I, I, I can't remember whether it was David Reagan or Jonathan Kahn. I don't remember which one of them wrote it. And when I read it, I just like, I was flabbergasted because my entire life I've never seen it. I've seen all this other stuff, all the stuff I've told you. But if you remember, if you remember, well, let me back up. The, when you go on top of the Ark of the Covenant, there are cherubim facing inward on each end of the mercy seat, throne of God, Ark of God, right? They're, they're deliberately looking toward the middle. So... Just a couple years ago, I'm reading and I see it, I see it, that when um, the women went to the tomb on Sunday morning, the Bibles, one of the Gospels says they went into the tomb, they went and looked into the tomb, and when they looked into the tomb, they saw an angel on each end of where Jesus' body was laying, looking toward the empty place. I'm, wow. That's the picture of the cherubim 
on top of the ark, 1,500 years before Jesus is born. Fulfilled. That's why I say, you hear me say in church, everything written in this book is going to happen. That's 1,500 years later. And these two angels go in there because they've got to do this. They've got to fulfill this prophetic scene of cherubim looking down upon the mercy seat, which was the body of Christ. Is that enough shadow for you? Anybody want some more? I'll give you one more. This past week I'm reading an article by Ben Shapiro. He's a Jewish guy who writes a lot of stuff. And I had never heard this perspective, just heard it this past week. And he says the Orthodox Jewish perspective, okay, I'll just take it for what he said. The Orthodox Jewish perspective is on Mount Sinai when Moses assembled the people at the mountain of God. Today's Jews believe that they were there. Stay with me. Because their souls of today's Jewish people were actually the seeds inside of those people that day at the base of the mountain. So when God was making his presentation to Moses and to the people, it wasn't just to Moses and the people in the flesh that day. It was to the future generations of the people that were inside of those people standing there, which means the, the lineage that would come generationally afterwards. They all believed that they were there, though not in flesh, they were there in the seed. Now, some of you would think, what? If you were here a couple of weeks ago, I told you, we went through this, that Melchizedek, Mel, I got goosebumps right now, Melchizedek, Abraham brings an offering to Melchizedek as the king of Salem, as the high priest of God. Abraham brings him an offering. And the Bible specifically says that Abraham didn't even have Isaac and he didn't have Jacob and he didn't have anybody. There were no Levites. None of those people were born. But the Bible specifically says that when Abraham brought that gift to Melchizedek, the Levites were bringing a gift to the high priest. Why? Because the Levites weren't born yet, but the seeds of the Levites were inside of Abraham's body. That's how the Jewish people think. And I don't think that's an accident. They see they see the generational future of the lineage. So let's keep going. Or I'm going to get sidetracked. We'll never finish. Verse 6. When these things were all in place, what? The tabernacle worship. The priest regularly entered the first room as they performed their religious duties. But one of the high priests, but excuse me, only the high priest. Now, what's that mean? You couldn't go past that first curtain. Unless you were the high priest. But only the high priest ever entered the most holy place. That would be the second curtain, right? Not the first door, but the second door. Only the high priest could enter the most holy place. And then he could only do that one time a year. And he always offered blood. He had to go in there with blood. He always offered blood for his own sins. And for the sins of the people had committed in ignorance. But these regulations, by these regulations... The Holy Spirit's revealing something. It revealed that the entrance of the most holy place was not freely open, 
As long as the tabernacle and the system it represents were still in use. If you miss that sentence, you're going to miss what comes next. It was temporary. It was temporary. Let me read it again. The Holy Spirit's revealing something about this tabernacle worship that a high priest could only go through that curtain once a year. He's revealing what? That the entrance to the most holy place. What's that really saying? The ability to walk into the presence of God was not freely open until something else was going to happen. Are you all with me? The Holy Spirit reveals that the point of the tabernacle was that it was temporary and that something else was going to have to happen to make it to where you didn't have to go once a year that you could approach God. But that veil's got to be torn, right? Because that's what he can't go past. He can't go past the veil. Let me read it again. The Holy Spirit revealed that the entrance to the most holy place was not freely open as long as the tabernacle and the system it represented were still in use. That's why there's going to have to be a new covenant. There's going to have to be a new priesthood. Jesus is the new covenant. He is the new priesthood because the old one's got to stop. If the old one keeps going, guess what? Once a year. Once a year. And it doesn't even take away sin. It just holds it back. The high priest could only enter the most holy place one time per year. Uh, Jewish people call it Yom Kippur or the Day of Atonement. And he must enter with the price. Day of Atonement. What's the atoning? What's the atonement? Blood. It's the price of his entry. Blood. Right? He's going in there with blood. He's going to go in there and offer blood. You go in there without blood, what happens? You don't come out. You will die. The high priest must offer a blood sacrifice for his own sins first, and then for the sins of the people of Israel. The blood sacrifice would cover the sin and guilt of the people for one year, enabling them, don't miss it, enabling them to live in the presence of God in the community, in the camp, without judgment, without judgment, without wrath, for one year. It was temporary. The Jews carried on this practice in Jerusalem, in the temple, after the tabernacle was done away with, and they built a permanent tabernacle, which is the temple, on the Temple Mount. They did that until 70 A.D., in which the Romans destroyed the temple and tore down its walls. The Jews still celebrate Yom Kippur even now. In fact, this year they celebrated it on September the 19th. But they do not offer animal sacrifices. This is interesting. They celebrate Yom Kippur. They celebrate the Day of Atonement. They call it the highest holy day. But they do not do animal sacrifices. Some of y'all know why? Yeah, I read it right here. It says that. Because there's no temple to do it in. And it would be wrong for the Jews to offer an animal sacrifice any place except the temple. So they don't offer animal sacrifices. But one day they're going to. The church age came. I said that temple was destroyed in 70 AD. By that time, the church had begun. The church age came and the temple worship has been 
halted for a time. The Bible says, not Terry Cooper, the Bible says that it will begin again during the tribulation. The Old Testament prophet Daniel says there will be a peace agreement signed between the Antichrist and Israel that will somehow, I don't understand how, reestablish animal sacrifices. Now I'm going to tell you what that means. There has to be a temple. Because they're not going to do animal sacrifices without a temple. You know what else it says? That after he signs the agreement of peace with the Antichrist and Israel, three and a half years into midpoint of that agreement, he will stop the animal sacrifices. You can't stop the animal sacrifices unless they start it. And all that is in the book of Daniel, which is about almost 600 years before Jesus is born in Bethlehem. It will begin again. And here's another one. <laughs> After that seven-year tribulation, when Jesus comes and stands on the Mount of Olives and walks into the eastern gate and sits on the David's throne, there will be a millennial temple. Read the book of Ezekiel. There will be a millennial temple. It's in the end of the last few chapters of the book of Ezekiel. There will be a temple. And listen... There will be animal sacrifices. I touched on this last Wednesday. Uh, I don't have time to get into that again. There will be a millennial temple. But, but where are we right now? It's halted. We're in the church age. You think that's coincidental? Uh-uh. Let's go to verse 8. By these regulations, the Holy Spirit revealed that the entrance to the most holy place was not freely open as long as the tabernacle and the system it represented were still in use. This is an illustration pointing to the present time. What's the present time? Well, this is the church age, right? Hebrews is written in the church age after the death and the burial and the resurrection of Christ. This illustration, what illustration? That something's going to have to happen that changes the order of the temple worship from a high priest from Levi to a covenant of animal blood. Something's going to change. It's an illustration pointing to the present time. For the gifts and sacrifices that the priests offer are not able, not able, what? These animal sacrifices are not able to cleanse the consciences of the people who bring them. What does that mean? Every year the high priest would go in and make an offering. But what it did, it, did it hold back the wrath of God, the judgment of God? Yeah. Did it allow God to live in the community of people? Yeah. But did it purify the hearts of the people? No, it did not. It never changed the inside of anybody. It didn't change anybody's heart. It didn't change their consciences. Verse 10, for that old system... That old system deals only with food and drink and various cleansing ceremonies, physical regulations that were in effect only until a better system could be established. What's the better system? There's a high priest from the order of Melchizedek, and he's going to have a covenant of his own blood. Not animal. Is he going to have to do it once a year? Huh? No, 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 no. Because all of that was just pointing to him. The old system held back the judgment of God. 
The blood of the lamb atoned for their sins each year. It worked for a whole long time. But the old system didn't change their hearts, their conscience, their desire. And something or someone would come later to do that. The new covenant of Christ would transform the heart of man. Change a person from the inside out. How? The Holy Spirit. This next verse reveals where all this was going. Where all the shadows would be fulfilled. Verse 11. So Christ... So Christ has now become the high priest over all the good things that have come. He has entered the greater, stay with me, don't miss it. He has done what? He has entered, what we've been talking about, this tabernacle. He has entered that greater, more perfect tabernacle in Jerusalem. Uh -uh, uh -uh. Where? In heaven. There's another tabernacle? Yeah, there's another one. He is, now Christ has become our high priest. He has entered a greater tabernacle, not on earth, in heaven, which was not made by human hands. The one on earth, people made that, right? This one that Jesus entered was not made by human hands and is not a part of the created world. It's out of this world, okay? Verse 12, with his own blood. Not the blood of goats, not the blood of calves. He entered the most holy place once for all time, and he secured our redemption forever. Somebody say hallelujah. This is our high priest. Jesus was a man. He is called the son of man. And this man entered that tabernacle in heaven. This man entered the presence of God. He's, he's fully God, but he's also fully man. And he entered the tabernacle in heaven. Right now, right now today, right now today, Jesus sits at the right hand of the Father in the temple of God in heaven. Right now today. He's there, sitting at the right hand of the Father. He's in this temple. He's in this heavenly tabernacle. The place you and I want to end up, he's there now. The Apostle John reveals this present scene in Revelation. So if you want to know about Jesus now, what's he doing, where's he at, what's going on, I got a few pictures, okay? Revelation seven thirteen. Then one of the 24 elders asked me, who are these who are clothed in white? By the way, it's during the tribulation. Where did they come from? And I said to him, Sir, you are the one who knows. Then he said to me, These are the ones who died in the great tribulation. They have washed their robes in the blood of the Lamb. When did they do that? They obviously did that during the seven-year tribulation. They've come out of the tribulation. And now they're clothed in white. Verse 15. That is why they stand in front of God's throne and serve him day and night, where? In his temple. Not on earth, in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will give them shelter. They will never again be thirst, be hungry or thirsty. They will never be scorched by the heat of the sun. For the lamb, you all know who he is, for the lamb on the throne will be their shepherd 
and he will lead them to springs of life-giving water, and God will wipe every tear from their eyes. There's a tabernacle, a temple. These tribulation saints martyred probably for their faith are in the tabernacle with Jesus. They're there. They're there. They're waiting on a resurrection body. But their souls are in the tabernacle. Go to the next one, Revelation 14, 17. And after that, another angel came from where? From the temple in heaven. And he also had a sharp sickle. Then another angel who had power to destroy with fire came from the altar. He shouted to the angel with the sharp sickle, Swing your sickle now to gather the clusters of grapes from the vines of the earth, for they are ripe for judgment. Where, where's the origination, origination of this final judgment? They're, they're coming out of the temple. They're coming out of the tabernacle. They've been sent down to the earth to harvest the crop of God's people. But where are they now? They're in heaven at the throne, at the temple. What, um, Revelation 16, 17. Then the seventh angel poured out his bowl in the air, and a mighty shout came from where? From the throne in the temple, saying, It is finished. Then the thunder crashed and rolled, and lightning flashed, and a great earthquake struck, the worst since people were placed on the earth. Revelation 15, 5. Then I looked and I saw a temple in heaven. God's tabernacle was thrown wide open. John is seeing this. I bet his eyes are probably popping out. I, the, the, the temple is, is thrown wide open. He can see inside of it. The seven angels were holding the seven plagues came out of the temple. They were clothed in spotless white linen with gold sashes across their chest. Then one of the four living beings handed each of the seven angels a gold bowl filled with the wrath of God who lives forever and ever. The temple was filled with smoke from God's glory and from God's power. No one could enter the temple until the seven angels had completed pouring out their seven plagues. In other words, everybody out! Everybody out! And no one... Angels, nobody. Nobody can go in there until judgment is finished, until I have poured out my wrath. Who? Jesus is our high priest, and he carries out the role of high priest, standing between man and God, regarding mercy, wrath, and judgment. Let's read this again. In the light of everything, let's read these verse 11 and 12 again. Knowing that Jesus is in that temple right now, today. So Christ has now become the high priest over all the good things that have come. He has entered that greater, more perfect tabernacle in heaven, which was not made by human hands and is not part of the created world. With his own blood, not the blood of goats or calves, he entered the most holy place once for all time and secured our redemption forever. Now what's Jesus doing there right now? During the church age. Tonight, what's he doing? Romans 8.31. What shall we say about such wonderful things as these? If God is for us, who can ever be against us? Since he did not spare even his own son, but gave him up for us all, won't he also give us everything else? 
Who dares accuse us whom God has chosen for his own? No one. For God himself has given us right standing with himself. Who then will condemn us? No one. For Christ Jesus died for us and was raised to life for us. And he is sitting. Where is he at right now? He is sitting in the place of honor at God's right hand right now, today. Doing what? Doing what? Pleading for us. He's interceding for me. He's interceding for you. Moses was a shadow of Christ. He was also a type of a high priest because he was allowed to stand between man and God. You remember when he came down the mountain and they're having this orgy down there? The golden calf orgy? And what does he do? God says, I'm going to wipe them all out and start all over. And Moses stood in the gap. He stood between God and, and the people. And he said, no, Lord. No. And God withheld his wrath. Withheld his judgment. He is a shadow of Jesus. Numbers. Let's go back to Numbers. Chapter 21. I find this one incredible. Go back to Numbers chapter 21. So the Lord sent poisonous snakes among the people. This is Moses leading them out of Egypt. 1,500 years before Jesus is born. So the Lord sent poisonous snakes among the people, and many were bitten and died. Then the people came to Moses and cried out, We have sinned by speaking against the Lord and against you, Moses. Pray that the Lord... Why, why they want him to pray? Because he's filling the role of their high priest to stand between them and God's judgment. Because God's judgment has broken out in snake bites. Pray that the Lord will take away the snakes. And Moses prayed for the people. He took on the role as the high priest. He stood between man and God. But to hold back the wrath of God, the judgment of God. Then the Lord told him, Moses, make a replica of poisonous snake. And attach that replica of a poisonous snake to a pole. All who are bitten will live if they simply look at the replica of the poisonous snake on the pole, which you will hold up in the air. So Moses made a snake out of bronze, and he attached the bronze snake to a pole. Then anyone who was bitten by a snake could come and look at the bronze snake, and what? They're healed. What's that about? Anybody see a shadow? Anybody see a shadow 1,500 years in advance? Do you know, let me ask you a question. Do you know the context? Everybody knows John 3, 16. I have met very few people that can tell me outright the context of John 3, 16. Do you know the context of John 3, 16? Because you've got to know the context to get the whole meaning of any scripture. Jesus has just told Nicodemus that he must be born again to enter the kingdom of God. And guess what? Jesus reveals between born again and John 3.16. What's in, what's in between born again and John 3.16? What's in between? I want to read to you what's in between. John 3.9. Again, 1,500 years after Moses held up that serpent in the wilderness. How are these things possible? Nicodemus asked. What, being born again? Jesus replied, you, Nicodemus, are a respected Jewish teacher, and yet you don't understand these things? I assure you, we 
tell you what we know and have seen, and yet you won't believe our testimony. But if you don't believe me when I tell you about earthly things, how can you possibly believe if I tell you about heavenly things, Nicodemus? No one has ever gone to heaven and returned, but the Son of Man, me, Jesus said, have come down from heaven. And as Moses lifted up the bronze snake, what's that got to do with anything? Everything. As Moses lifted up the bronze snake on a pole in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up. So that everyone who believes in Him will have eternal life. Jesus is revealing His lifted up death some three years. Listen, three years before it happens. He's telling them how He will die. As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that everyone who looks upon Him will be cured from what? The snake bite. What is the snake bite? It happened in the garden. It is sin. How are you going to get cured from sin? You've got to look up at the one who is lifted up. Hebrews 3. I'm going back from 9 to 3. Going back to chapter 3. And so, dear brothers and sisters who belong to God and are partners with those called to heaven, think carefully about this Jesus whom we declare to be God's messenger and high priest. For he was faithful to God who appointed him, just as Moses served faithfully when he was entrusted with God's entire house. But Jesus deserves far more glory than Moses, just as a person who builds a house deserves more praise than the house itself. For every house has a builder, but the one, who, the one who built everything is God. So let's do something. Let's go back to Hebrews chapter 9. Jump back in at verse 13. Under the old system, that's the old covenant, the old tabernacle, the old high priest. Under the old system, the blood of goats and bulls and ashes of young cow could cleanse people's bodies from ceremonial impurity. Just think how much more. The blood of Christ will purify our consciences. There's a reference to something happening on the inside that couldn't happen on the inside in the old way. They purify our consciences from sinful deeds so that we can worship the living God. For by the power of the eternal spirit, Christ offered himself to God as a perfect sacrifice for our sins. That is why he is the one who mediates a new covenant between God and people. So that all who are called can receive the eternal inheritance God has promised them. For Christ died to set them free from the penalty of sins that they committed under the first covenant. The power of the eternal spirit. Is God a man? No. God is spirit and those who worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. The Bible des describes him as one who lives in unapproachable light. He is spirit. And by the power of the eternal spirit, it is revealed, that power is revealed through the person of Christ. And John, the, John says about Jesus, he has the spirit without limit, which means he is God wrapped in human flesh. Jesus mediates a new covenant. This covenant does something the old covenant could not do. It changes us from the inside out. 
This new covenant came into effect by the death of the high priest. It's like a wheel. Any of y'all have filled out a wheel maybe for your children or your future generations and you don't want to die and let the state or other people decide your, 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 your next generation? You do a wheel. But when is that wheel in effect? When you stop breathing. The same thing happens here. The wheel is placed into effect upon the death. When the high priest Jesus took his own blood and poured it out, everything changed. We have a new tabernacle. We have a new covenant. We have a new high priest. It's all new. But when did it take effect? Look at the next verse. If I can find it, I'll read it. Verse 16. Now when someone leaves a will, it is necessary to prove that that person who made it is dead. The will goes into effect only after the person's death. While the person who made it is still alive, the will cannot be put into effect. So what Jesus was teaching during those three years, it was preparing them for the day that he died because it wouldn't go into effect until he died. The death, burial, and resurrection of Christ has revealed a new covenant, a new priesthood, a new tabernacle. Verse 18. That is why even the first covenant was put into effect with the blood of an animal. For after Moses had read each of God's commandments to all the people, he took the blood of calves and goats along with water and sprinkled both the book of God's law and all the people using hyssop branches and scarlet wool. And then he said, this blood confirms the covenant God made with you. And in, the, and in the same way, in the same way, he sprinkled blood on the tabernacle and on everything used for worship. It, does that sound like it cleanses anything? Can you imagine someone just taking blood and just throwing it all over everything and saying, now it's cleansed? It sounds like it's all gotten nasty now, but you don't understand that the cleansing was for sin. And the only thing that deals with sin is blood. Blood. Verse 22. In fact, according to the law of Moses, nearly everything was purified with blood. For without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. The central law of God is revealed here. Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. The only price for sin is blood. Life is in the blood, and it's life for life. And here, I'm going to tell you, animal blood sacrifices in the Old Testament was temporary. It was not permanent. It was never going to be the fix. It was only going to reveal the fix. It was not the fix. Verse 23. That is why the tabernacle and everything in it were copies of things in heaven. Everything in the tabernacle is a copy a shadow, a replica of the reality of the things in heaven. It had to be pure, purified by the blood of animals. But the real thing in heaven, what real thing? The real tabernacle, the real presence of God. The real thing in heaven had to be purified with far better sacrifices than the blood of animals. You couldn't shed the blood of an animal and take on that tabernacle. It wasn't going to work. Animal sacrifices were not going to be enough. Copies and shadows all revealed by Christ. <coughs> Verse 24. 
For Christ did not enter into a holy place made with human hands. Christ did not enter into a holy place made with human hands. That's not where he went. Which was a copy of the true one in heaven. He entered into heaven itself to appear now before God on our behalf. And he did not enter heaven to offer himself again and again like the high priest here on earth who enters the most holy place year after year with the blood of an animal. If that had been necessary, Christ would have had to die again and again ever since the world began. But now, once for all time, he has appeared. This is really big. This is really big. Now, once for all time, he has appeared at the end of the age. Better not read over that. Because I'm going to tell you, this book, this chapter, this page, they're running thin. The end of the age. He has appeared at the end of the age to remove sin by his own death as a sacrifice. Blood for blood, death for death. For Jesus to enter the most holy place in Jerusalem's temple, he would have had to have been from the tribe of Levi. Anybody with me? For Jesus to have entered into the Jerusalem temple with a sacrifice, he would have had to have been a Levite. He's not a Levite. That's not why he came. It wouldn't have worked. He would have had to have been from Aaron's lineage. He's not. He's from the tribe of Judah. And he came to bring a greater covenant. I close with the final verses of chapter 9 that reveal the future of every human being. Verse 27, and just as each person is destined to die once, and after that comes judgment. It's called the end of the age. So also Christ died once for all time as a sacrifice to take away the sins of many people. He will come again, not to deal with our sins, but to bring salvation to all who are what? He is coming back, and he's going to bring salvation. He's not coming back to deal with sin. He's not coming back to deal with sin. Sin's finished. He's coming back to bring salvation to a group of people. Do not read over it. He's coming back to bring salvation to all those who are eagerly waiting for him. Not for people who are going to say, oh, no, it's you. No, he's, one, he's coming back to bring salvation to those who say, I have been waiting for you for a long time. That's who he's coming for. There's a difference. Final truths. We'll wrap up. We're all going to die and we're going to face God. At the end of the age. Jesus died to take away, to atone for the sins of mankind. He's coming back to the earth and he's not going to be coming back to deal with sin. He's coming back. When he comes back, it's finished. Jesus is coming back. To give us a resurrection. He's going to come back and the graves are going to bust open. And those who have died in Christ. Their souls are with him in heaven. They're going to come back with him. Their souls are going to come back with him. And the graves are going to break open. And dust is going to be reformed into immortality. And the soul of the departed saints is going to enter that new created body. And never, 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 never. Grow old. Forever. Forever. 
Is this the best deal you ever heard? This is it. You know what you got to do? Just as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must those look at him. You got to look up. Don't look down. You got to look up. They hold it up. They hold up. And you know what? We are all snake bit. Everybody in this room, we're snake bit. Everybody on earth is snake bit. And Jesus says that Moses lifted up the serpent and there was a power. Moses was this picture of the future high priest who was going to stand, was going to tell the people how to get over the snake bite. And we've got a high priest that told you and I how to get over the snake bite. You're going to die if you don't get over the snake bite of sin. And he's our high priest and he's way greater than Moses. But you've got to look up. He's coming back to give us resurrection. Finally, 1 Corinthians 15, 21. So you see, just as death came into the world through a man, now the resurrection from the dead has begun through another man. Just as everyone dies because we all belong to Adam, everyone who belongs to Christ will be given new life. But there is an order to this resurrection. Christ was raised as the first of the harvest, and then all who belong to Christ will be raised. When? 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 When he comes back. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for these promises. May you find us ready, eagerly, waiting. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you all.